Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Sebnam Kalimil-Uskan, who is Professor of Economics. Uh, who, she is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research. Her current research focuses on real and financial linkages in the global economy and the implications of such linkages on economic fluctuations and growth. Welcome, Sebnam. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with your recent paper, The Economic Case for Global Vaccinations, an epidemiological model with international production networks, in which you say COVID-19 pandemic had a devastating effect on both lives and livelihoods in 2020. The arrival of effective vaccines can be a major game changer. However, vaccines are in short supply as of early 2021, and most of them are reserved for the advanced economies. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this, Sednam. I mean, I grew up in India, and my parents still live there. And, um, and you know, when we think about a worldwide pandemic, and as you um, very clearly shown in your paper in, in, uh, in detail, that we have 8.3 billion people, we have 200 or so countries, um, it is not 1918 anymore. I don't know, uh, some world leaders may not know this, but uh, we have gone 100 years forward and uh, we don't have segmented economies. We have a very connected system. And so it is sort of um, incredulous that world leaders think that they can, they can get their countries vaccinated and go on from there, right? So... So, so, so what do you find in your paper here? Yeah, uh, that's exactly the point, Jill. So we start from the, uh, you know, very clear observation that we do live in a globalized world. Countries uh, are connected to each other through trade and financial linkages. And this world, you know, it, it, it wasn't invented yesterday. We have been living in this globalized world uh, over the last 30 years. And this is not something you can just turn back uh, with a you know flip of your finger overnight. I mean, you cannot just stop trade and finance, even though now there is a lot of talk about it, uh, about this kind of backlash to globalization. So we are saying like, look, you know, we are, we are starting from this point. We are living in this globalized world and we have to make sure we use the powers of that globalization to, to solve the pandemic. I mean, we understand globalization amplified the pandemic because at the end of the day, this is a virus that travels from country to country. Uh, but we also realize that globalization is the only solution to the pandemic. We have to make yeah. sure these linkages between countries in terms of trade and finance works for eliminating the pandemic and works for recovering every economy. So in fact, you know, our motto in the paper is uh, no economy recovers until every economy does. So, I mean, clearly there is an ethical and moral case to be made on the 
uh, human side, obviously, I mean, what is going on right now in the world, especially in India, is, is beyond heartbreaking. So uh, we thought that that case is just so clear that, you know, we should write the economic case just to make the point that, look, I mean, clearly, you know, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to stop the virus uh, everywhere. But we are going to tell you that this is also in your best economic interest. This, this message is for rich countries uh, to uh, basically share the vaccines, stop the pandemic everywhere in the world is going to help you economically. Actually, if you don't do that, uh, rich countries, your economy is not going to recover. So all these news now we have uh, in terms of U.S. recovering, uh, you know, and other advanced economies are on their way to recovery. This is going to cut short. I mean, these and the numbers, how much is our interiorians. And th those are the numbers we, we show in the paper. And then the reason is very simple. Yes, you know, uh, U.S. can eliminate the virus, open all the restaurants, gyms and all that. But the U.S. also exports a lot. So its economy depends on export driven. If the rest of the world is sick, if those countries are sick, they are going to be in recession and they are not going to buy U.S. products. And on top of that, U.S. also imports a lot of intermediate products to produce. I mean, look what is happening, right? Car production came to a stop in the U.S. because of the chip shortage. Now, the semiconductor shortage is going to create a bigger havoc in terms of a lot of uh, durable and electrical appliances. So that means those productions are not going to uh, be at its uh, regular scale and pace in the U.S. and other advanced countries. Why yes. is that? Because again, the other countries are sick and they cannot send you those intermediate inputs because they cannot produce those because their workers are sick. So these export and import linkages, which is trade linkages and production linkages, this is not just trade, but this is also something about your production in your country, uh, is going to uh, lead you lost economically, uh, again, billions and trillions of dollars, if uh, you know the pandemic is not stopped everywhere, and of course, the way to do that is the vaccines, and um, uh, this is you know what we do in the paper. We 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 assume all the advanced countries are vaccinated: U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, Canada, and all all these countries are vaccinated in 2021. But the rest of the world, basically emerging markets and developing economies like India, Brazil, Turkey, they are not vaccinated. Yeah. And if if you have this scenario, what is the cost economically? to those advanced countries. Those are the numbers we estimate. Yeah. And so so ethical and moral considerations are good, but you're making a strong economic argument uh, in the paper. So, so I mean, it, it's a very intuitive um, argument, uh, Sebnam. Uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot about uh, world leaders. Uh, what we have seen is that large countries, large democratic countries, um, that have sort of, I don't know how to explain it, but leaders from yesteryear, so to speak, uh, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not hitting on their age, but uh, perhaps they don't have a good understanding of how the, how the world works, uh, have had a great difficulty managing this. Um, and so, so if you go back to sort of, the, you know, the implementation, we understand a system with 8.3 billion people are not going to, is not going to be cured uh, by localization, by segmentation. Uh, and even those who don't understand the economic models deeply can understand that intuitively. And so from an implementation perspective, um, I think we are, you know, back to the United Nations. Do you see one of the problems is that we don't really have an organization who has the capabilities and resources to actually take this up. Do you see that? Is that that is a sort of the bigger problem? I mean, I think we do have the resources and the capabilities and you know know-how. I mean, we have it all in, in terms of the world scale. I mean, if you think about it, we found the vaccine in a year. I mean, this is this is the record uh, pace, right? So the problem. Uh, was, has been, and, and still is, basically this uh, lack of leadership and not having a vision. Uh, I, I mean, early on, obviously, countries uh, who kind of realize, okay, you know, we have to get these vaccine supplies uh, to my own citizen, they sign up, they order these, uh, you know, vaccines, and then the others uh, didn't. So this is, this, as you understand, this is not a, the money thing at this point. This is not about income. It's not about a rich, poor country thing. 
it is literally about leadership and, and vision. And of course, the ones, uh, some of those over that, right? Some of those countries uh, ordered uh, multiples of their population because at that point they didn't know which vaccine uh, is going to work. So, okay, fine. But now, at, I mean, uh, you know, after the uh, fact that we know uh, which vaccines are working and uh, if you have multiples of your population, clearly you have to, you have to give them away, right? And in fact, this recent move by the US uh, giving the AstraZeneca to other countries and you know, that's very good, but, but there are other countries like, you know, there's the UK, Israel, there's Canada. These countries also have uh, multiples of their population. So they, first of all, they should definitely, I mean, this is no brain, right? You should give those away because this is more than what you need in your country, number one. Number two, you have to fund COVAX. COVAX is an initiative exactly, you know, established for this. It is, it is a, a joint uh, effort of WHO and the European Commission you know, they are uh, directly contracting with companies uh, like Pfizer and they are buying from the companies and they are shipping off to the emerging markets and developing countries and, uh, you know, rich countries and they are just asking money. You know, they are not asking anything else and rich countries gave to COVAX. I'm not saying they didn't, but they should give more. I mean, right now, COVAX has like 40 billion or so uh, uh, opening in its budget. And then the, the, the cost we are estimating that rich countries are going to lose are in trillions. So it is no yeah. brainer that you, you you should invest in COVAX. Okay, again, number one, you give away your extra supply. Number two, you invest in COVAX. Now, number three, uh, you just make everything to increase the supply and production, right? I mean, if you know Moderna, Pfizer, you know, if these vaccines are you know being produced in your country, just make you know do everything in your power to increase that supply, increase that production. Uh, clearly, these export controls are not good ideas in this type of an environment. So, but you are right. I mean, I, I think we know how to do it, and we have the resources and capability, but we don't have the leadership. So, if you think about it, who is going to organize this, right? I mean, the, of course, first you think WHO, but WHO don't have that type of uh, human power. So then, G, the, the other name is immediately comes to your mind is G20 because G20 represents rich countries' governments, right? So, for for somehow that is the thing that. I think was missing. Somehow countries are not getting together to organize and to manage this. I, at this point, it is all about increasing the supply and production. It is not about you know money and it's not about uh, a, a rich country, poor country thing. It's just that everything has been so slow and everything you know kind of coming behind. I mean, since the start of this pandemic, I mean, we, we were always behind and the virus is always ahead. Uh, and what is happening in India right now also, I and mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complete failure of leadership. Right? In fact, I think all these countries that are governed by this type of lack of vision, lack of leadership people, uh, they, they are, I'm, I'm telling, their people should, should, should hold these leaders accountable. All these strong men type of leaders, populist leaders, they should go, they should go. I mean, I don't understand what the people in these countries are doing when they go to vote, right? They should vote saying we don't want these people because these people lack of vision, they, they lack leadership, and we don't want them to govern us. All these countries, I'm not just talking about India, Brazil, Turkey, all of them should do this. And in a way, actually, this is what Americans did, right? This is exactly what Americans did. They went to the booth and they said, no, we don't want Trump because he cannot handle the pandemic. I mean, pandemic is a great uh, event that tests leadership and vision, right? And so many world leaders failed at that, and some didn't. So I think all countries should look at their leader, a very good look, and you know, vote uh, you know very uh, diligent the next time. But again, at this point, I think the point, the, the whole thing is really rich countries should come together. I don't know if that body is going to be G20, WHO, but they should really fund COVAX. They should really do everything in their power to increase the supply and production. Otherwise, we will never get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. In in uh, 2009, said I mean, one of my books, I argued that men should not be put in charge of <laughs> yeah, um, for a variety of reasons. It's not just biological, it's also evolutionary. And they they seem to uh, fail uh, when there is a discontinuity. They, they, they seem to do okay when, you know, things are sort of normal and, and uh, you know, if they can play golf every day and stuff like that, they do pretty well. But in a discontinuity, it's, it's much more difficult and you can look at New Zealand, you can look at Taiwan, you can look at Germany, you can see leaders who have done exceptionally well in discontinuities, right? So, so as you say, there's a leadership problem. I don't know whether you touch on this in the paper, but 
there is also a timing issue here. The, this organism mutates, right? So we already have the variety of mutations that we have identified. And the number of mutations we will get is a function of the total viral load in the system. So if there is, you know, 300 million people infected in India, for example, um, the number of mutations you will see is going to exponentially increase into the future. So there is a timing question. And so, you know, Biden administration has done exceptionally well compared to the one before that. But uh, they don't seem to have gotten this really well. So even if they, they get this now, it is still, uh, I don't know what the net effect is going to be. Uh, do, you, do you have that modeled into the, uh, in your paper? Yeah, so this is a very good question. Uh, timing is going to be important, right? So that's why every minute counts, right? Like, you know, uh, the more uh, late we are, it's going to get exactly as you were saying, it's, it's going to be in multiples. Now, in our model, we calculate everything for 2021. So the, the numbers we calculate, for example, that benchmark number of, of 4 trillion global loss uh, from not vaccinating poor countries, even old rich countries are vaccinated in 2021, and half of that is going to be paid by rich countries, that's a 2021 number. Now, you, you push this forward in 2022, that four trillion number is going to go up, right? But the share is, of the rich countries is, is going to be the same. They are still going to be paying, you know, half of that global cost, right? I mean, it can be even more than that, depending on how much they are going to earn. If their main trading partners are in really, really bad shape, then the, the cost to rich countries can increase. So, so we didn't, in that sense, we didn't work the timing out to see how many multiples of that increase will be. Uh, but definitely the timing is kind of there in the 2021 numbers because we work three case scenarios there. You know, one of them, uh, the benchmark is again, all the rich countries are fully vaccinated in 2021, but poor emerging markets and developing economies, poor countries, they are not. So this is, this is the benchmark that gives you the fortune number. But in the other scenarios, we assume worst case scenarios, like you know, only half of the populations of the rich countries are vaccinated uh, and emerging markets and developing economies have the um, uh, this, uh, pandemic getting worse, like the third wave, exactly like you know, what is happening in India right now. Uh, then the numbers can go as high as to 9 trillion. In fact, this 9 trillion number is the one quoted by Dr. Tedros when I presented the work at the WHO press conference. So things can get really bad. We, we give you the really worst case scenario estimates to make sure everybody understands the economic case uh, behind, uh, uh, you know, uh, not doing vaccinationalism and sharing the vaccines uh, globally. Uh, so again, I mean, if you do add another year, everything is, is, is going to be multiplied. But here, the, the crux of the issue is how bad the, the pandemic is going to be in the other countries, because we have an epidemiological model there, right? And we start yeah. Uh, running this model beginning of 2021. So we get the, uh, you know, our numbers for every country and we uh, basically assign them to different sectors according to the physical proximity of jobs at the end of 2020, right? We get the numbers December 2020, that's when the vaccines are found and then uh, start, you know, evolving the pandemic in every country, right? So if this gets worse than what we assume in the evolution of the pandemic, of course, everything is going to be worse, right? The numbers are going to be high. Yeah. So, Sevna, let me ask you this. So, if you were to rewind time, let's say rewind time by 15 months, and you have the opportunity to design an optimum policy at that point, what would that policy look like? Yeah, so uh, that would look like somehow immediately we, we had the, not actually immediately we had the vaccine news, even before that, then vaccine companies were working on vaccines and these rich countries are buying all of them. That's why rich countries have a lot, right? At yeah. that point, uh, capabilities for production should have been put into place. Exactly with the same mentality, right? Why rich countries bought Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson before even we knew if these are going to work or not, because, you know, this, this was a bet, right? Let me play on all the horses whichever one you know wins i will have that anyway because i'm i'm paying it in advance so same could have done for the for the production capacity right the pro so assuming that 
one of these are going to work. I mean, we, we know how many people in the world, right? I mean, we need, we have, you know, six, seven billion, and there is going to be several doses uh, for certain vaccines. So that type of production capacity should have been put into place very early on so that once uh, the raw materials, the inputs and all that, so all that should have been studied. Again, that requires a, a central body, right? WHO, G20, I don't know who is going to do that. None of that that is done. Everybody act on their own. And uh, certain countries said, I'm going to buy all of these things in advance. And you know, when one of them works, I will have the supplies. And the other countries said, I'm going to wait until I know which one works. Then I'm going to do my order. Then, of course, it was too late. I mean, this, by the way, this is, again, not a rich country, poor country thing. Europe did the same mistake, right? So, uh, and uh, they also have a big problem right now. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we could have predicted that the intervention, the vaccines, would most likely be discovered in the U.S. Um, because because of the large uh, R&D infrastructure that's already in place. Uh, but the, but but what you're talking about sort of the production infrastructure that had to be distributed for this to work because you know we cannot cook up everything in New Jersey and then you know vaccine in, in 8.3 billion people. Yeah, it's unlikely to be effective. Um, but then, I, I guess you know, in some sense, it's easier said than done. How would you, how would you create a distributed production across the world? Yeah, this is a very tough question. I mean, you're you're exactly right. So I I believe uh, the way to do that early on, yes, for example, countries like India should be at the center of it because clearly you have to use countries with already large scale production capacity. And, uh, you know, how you do that in advance, even before knowing which vaccine is going to work, uh, is very difficult. Uh, but somehow uh, we do this in other uh, rare commodities and important items. We do have these distribution networks, right? So, uh, I, you know, I don't plan them. That's not my job. But I'm sure there are people who spend a lot of time in thinking about these distribution networks of uh, important commodities in the world. So same type of care should have put in the vaccine production and distribution, which which wasn't the case, but it it it, it was not done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pessimistically, this is just one iteration. We're going to see many of these types of things in the future, and so from a from a future policy perspective, uh, from a United Nations perspective, Covax was a good attempt, but it didn't seem to seem to have worked. I don't know what what the what the reasons are. But um, do we do we need to really sort of rethink um, the WHO and other UN organizations in anticipation? I mean, we missed the mark here. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll get over it. Uh, but five years down the road, we're going to face this again. So, how would you suggest to sort of reorganize, restructure? I mean, up? I fully agree. I mean, we have to rethink the uh, the international organizations that supposed to be on top of the public health, right? And clearly, next time this happens, and all the epidemiologists are telling us that this is going to keep happening, uh, we need that very, you know, centralized and very resourceful uh, agency, right? I mean, this is exactly like uh, on the economic side, IMF and World Bank. These institutions are very resourceful. They are powerful because they uh, were built uh, out of crisis, right? I mean, economic crisis, and they were very helpful in many, many other economic crises and economic issues since uh, they were built. So now the same approach should have been applied to public health. And it cannot be a country level thing, right? I mean, yeah. uh, it has to be a global thing. So so I, I, I think you should just do same as we did with IMF and World Bank for, for public health version. Uh, and that, I don't know what type of a, uh, you know, body will that be, but obviously some combination of WHO, United Nations, but it has to be a, institution with a lot of resources, a lot of connections, a lot of power uh, somehow to be on top of these things. And at the start of this thing, WHO, you know, couldn't even go to China. I mean, clearly uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a joke, right? I mean, you can't deal with a worldwide global pandemic if you, if you can't even uh, go uh, to the places where it started. So I envision an institution at the global level, but obviously every country should have offices of this institution and and all that and that's how IMF and World Bank works. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. No, 
I was think, thinking, Sabnam, you know, we, we have an organization in the United Nations called uh, the Security Council. And, um, you know, if humanity were to advance, um, you know, if Security Council's goal is to, to prevent people throwing ICBMs at each other, hopefully, uh, you know, <laughs> that's something we can get over. But we're going to face worldwide issues like this, pandemics, meteor hits, other things. We have a group of countries there. They call themselves Security Council members, presumably because they are very special. And if they are special, don't they have a responsibility to step in and do something? Yeah, I think everybody has a responsibility here, and they, they definitely have. But that Security Council is thought of under very different circumstances and for very different things, right? So, but you're right, all these things that were uh, either born because of, uh, you know, economic crisis, Cold War, geopolitical events, they have to adapt themselves to this new world where now the security challenges are going to be different, right? They are going to be cyber attacks, pandemics, you know, uh, meteor, these type of things. So I fully agree with you, you know, we somehow, Either these bodies, these institutions should adapt to this new world, or there should be a new institution that will take care of these issues. Exactly, yeah. I want to go into another working paper that you have, COVID-19 and emerging markets, mm-hmm. uh, SIR model, demand shocks and capital flows, in which you say we quantify the macroeconomic effects of COVID-19 for emerging markets using a framework that combines uh, SIR model with, with data on international and intersectoral linkages for a small open economy, and you're looking at Turkey here. So, so, so what do you find in the context of Turkey? So what we want to uh, highlight in that paper is the importance of uh, foreign demand, external demand for uh, emerging markets like Turkey. So the most uh, visible form of that will be tourism, right? I mean, so these countries are now going to be in big trouble because they are going to lose a lot of tourism uh, revenue because of COVID. And, and we were trying to argue in that paper, look, you know, they, these countries' products are uh, demanded by foreigners too. And now with COVID, that demand is going to be disappearing. And they also, at the same time, have to deal with the COVID in their own countries, right? They have to provide these packages to workers, firms, all these programs that rich countries did. But unfortunately, these countries, uh, they don't have the fiscal space, right? They don't have that much trillions of trillions of packages they can put on the table as Biden administration doing right now for, for families, for workers, for, for firms, for jobs, right? So they don't have that type of uh, funds. And at the same time, they are going to be suffering a double value, right? Their own restaurants, gyms, all that is going to be closed exactly as in the US. Plus, you know, they are also going to lose from this foreign demand side uh, because, you know, they are going to lose on tourism. They cannot sell their, you know, exports because foreigners are not going to want those. Okay. So then we said, uh, how do you deal with this? Uh, And then we said capital flows is very important here, right? So that limited domestic fiscal space can be uh, covered by uh, or filled by, that hole can be filled by capital flow. So basically by foreign investors providing that financing that those countries uh, need uh, instead of they are trying to raise that financing domestically when they also be losing uh, things like tourism revenue. So, so that is the point we were making. And here also actually uh, the U.S. monetary policy plays a big role because if you remember early in the pandemic, of course, there was a huge uncertainty like March, April, May, and investors, uh, foreign investors, global investors, they didn't want to be investing in countries like Turkey because they just were afraid that, uh, you know, this is just going to be a huge shock, uh, huge crisis, huge financial crisis like 2008. So they all basically came back home. Uh, and this is these are these type of times everybody actually comes back to U.S. and comes back to U.S. dollar as the safe haven. So but then because U.S. monetary policy showed a tremendous uh, stimulative action, uh, we realized and those global investors also realized that there, we are not going to have a financial crisis. This is not 2008 anymore. So uh, they realize that they can go back and invest in countries like, you know, Turkey, Brazil, uh, and Argentina and all. So that's the point you're making in the paper. This is actually a very good thing. So here, U.S. monetary policy is, without knowing, really helping these emerging markets like Turkey because capital flows uh, can come back to those countries and help with their financing needs 
when they are limited domestically in raising finance. And that's actually exactly what happened. I mean, we wrote that paper very early, but if you look at the, the uh, you know, the second half of the year after May and June, capital flows really uh, flow to emerging markets. Many of them uh, uh, raised record funding actually, which really helped them in terms of this limited domestic fiscal space. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a really complex, uh, I, I don't quite understand it, Sednam, but oh. a very complex um, issue. So um, when capital flows sort of dry out, uh, they're, they're, it is sort of interconnected with supply chain, the global yes. supply chain, right? Yes. So, um, you know, a, a multinational set up a manufacturing facility in country X, country X gets a shock, and capital flows sort of dry out, it sort of loop back on the multinational from a supply chain risk perspective. Um, but the, 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 the countries where this company is based don't really have optimum policy. So everything is sort of a interconnected system, but, but we don't have an entity that is able to look at all of this uh, interconnectedness, right? That's exactly right. I mean, uh, of course, on the on the good side, uh, you know, WTO is kind of the watchdog here, that entity that makes sure the trade is, you know, fair and, you know, everybody plays by the rules. But on the finance side, I mean, again, IMF uh, and World Bank to a degree, but they are more about the government finance, right? When governments borrow from governments or governments borrow from uh, World Bank IMF. So when capital flows are between two governments, then when private investors involved and multinationals involved, right? Exactly like you were saying. So now you have private bodies on both sides of the transaction, right? There's a company in Brazil or Turkey, a private company, uh, you know, that company borrows from say uh, JP Morgan, a financier or an, a multinational where, where that company can become an affiliate of that multinational. So clearly, no, no international body can can interfere into this transaction. This is a transaction between two private bodies. But at the end, if the lender side is a multinational company uh, or you know JP Morgan's, any financiers like that, of course you're right. They are not the ones that got hurt at the end. The domestic company, uh, the private firm in Brazil, Turkey, they are the ones who are losing this financing, these capital flows, and they are the ones who end up uh, being hurt at the end. So. Um, I mean, again, it is a very, very um, good question. How, I mean, that to ask that, is this optimal, right? Should we have an international body looking yeah. at these things? I mean, it is tough, right? So it is not clear because at the end of the day, if you do that, you are going to be in a private transaction. So, and then, you know, there can be a response to that. Well, that, that may not be optimal either. I mean, these are two private bodies uh, engaging in a transaction. They must be optimizing for themselves. I mean, that's how you know economists think. That's why we we like the markets and we don't want so much interference with markets as long as markets uh, work. So here, of course, uh, if we think it is similar to WTO, why we have WTO? Because we believe some countries don't play the trade by the rules, right? They uh, they they cheat and they kind of. That's why we have to watch the trade. So, but maybe here also multinationals don't play by the rules. You know, they don't pay their taxes. Uh, maybe they somehow abuse those domestic firms. So that does require in that sense. If that is the case, so that means, again, this market is not working. Even this is a market where the transaction is between two private bodies. If it is not working properly, then, of course, we do need uh, a body uh, to govern this. But I think that is the thing that is hard to show, right, to, to yes. prove that this market is not working. Yeah. 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 So, so I have a, a sort of a modeling question. It's not not in the paper, but so if you if you take a developing country, um, let's say it's uh, India, Turkey, Brazil, it doesn't really matter. Is there some sort of a step function change? Uh, so 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 there is a worldwide discontinuity. Let's say it's a pandemic or something else. Is there, you know, sort of a a critical point? at which a developing market is going to completely collapse um, for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, as you mentioned, capital flows, um, if, if it has supply, ch supply chain intermediaries there, they don't have uh, operating capabilities. 
So, so do you think there is sort of a critical point in which a developing market could completely collapse? I mean, I know that's a pessimistic question, but I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering. Right. No, we used to work with these models actually uh, in, in, you know, um, in the old days. They are known also multiple equilibria or development trap models where th there is that, uh, you know, critical point where everything goes wrong and you go to that bad equilibrium where you collapse. I mean, you and, you know, we have real life examples of that failed states. I mean, the countries that nothing works. I mean, the recent example would be Venezuela, right? Yeah. Uh, so when that happened, we, I mean, we cannot tell you, these models cannot tell you uh, there is this threshold, like, okay, look at five variables and when they are this value, it will be the case, like, you know, GDP, capital flows, trade. If they are like that, then that's going to be the bad equilibrium. We, we don't have those type of threshold, but we do know what type of uh, governing structure uh, pushes countries to those points, okay? And then the most important thing here is the institutions, uh, good quality institutions, property right protection, because those are the things that uh, support technology, education, and ideas. And once that starts disappearing, that's exactly where these countries uh, go to that, start going to that bad equilibrium of uh, complete collapse and disappearing. So so that is, that we know, because, because you need to have, uh, you know, Again, as I said, these are these type of multiple equilibrium thinking because that is also a good equilibrium. You can be in a very bad shape, but then you can be in a very good shape like Korea, right? Korea is, is always the example given because the country divided into two and one part is great and the other part, you know, we know uh, where it is right now. So North Korea and South Korea story. So uh, the, the critical thing here is that you need to keep inventing, you need to keep your ideas, you need to keep have technological progress, education, and for those things to happen, you have to have uh, democracy and property rights in your country. Once you start uh, failing on those, then everything starts going downhill. Uh, actually, that, that we know from, from the entire uh, last 20, 30 years of economic research. Yeah, that, that's very interesting, uh, Sebnam. So, so there is a sort of a foundational set of characteristics that work like insurance, um, technology, infrastructure, education, information. And when you don't have those foundational characteristics, you're at a higher risk in a discontinuity, you could fail completely. Yes, exactly. And so, so does that have any implication? So we haven't really seen things take off in Africa. As, as, as part of the COVID-19 shock. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not studying this, I'm making a statement, I don't know if it's true. Um, I think Africa is a good example. Yes, Africa could have been worse, right? I mean, if it's again, and one of the reasons now why India is so bad, they are saying is apart from the leadership mistakes made is the weak public health infrastructure, right? So given that Africa also has it very weak, I mean, there are African countries, they don't even have ICU units or ventilators, right? So the early prediction is Africa is going to be, uh, you know, horrible. I mean, it's going to be like the, the worst case scenario for COVID. It didn't happen because I think, again, this, this is where, again, leadership and vision comes. In yes. their case, though, because of experience, right? I think Africa dealt with so many other diseases and uh, these type of public health issues, even though they lack the infrastructure, they understand that they, they cannot deal with it if it comes to this level. So they understand that very well because it happened to, to them before. And that's yeah. why they act very early. I mean, the, the, the mask wearing was amazing, right? I mean, if, if you look at it, the best countries in terms of mask wearing is the Asian countries and African countries early yeah. on. So, so that, of course, helped a lot when, you know, I, I mean, if you are in a country where half of the population doesn't wear masks, I mean, there's so much you can do. If if everybody does so do diligent on this from the start, that helps a lot. I think that really helped them kind of this having the experience with diseases and the viruses and knowing that they won't be able to deal with it if it becomes at an astronomical level, they kind of uh, did a lot of precautions early on. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. So the, the westernization, um, from a cultural perspective, sort of acts like an amplification effect. Um, and, and we have seen that in, in Asia, and it, you are sort of optimistic that we will see that in Africa too. I'm, I have to say I'm sort of puzzled by the lag. 
maybe we don't have the right numbers. Now. Of course. No, I agree. I mean, like three months down the road, we might see an Africa looking like India, right? So uh, because first, we don't know the right numbers. Second, uh, everything is lagging. Uh, a third, uh, people relax, right? Even they were wearing masks at the beginning and, you know, they were trying to keep things under control by the time, uh, when the time passes, you know, you, you, you stop doing these things. Plus, now, you know, we are getting into summer, there's more travel. I mean, Africa is also a place where generally less travel than the other countries, but there can be more travel now. Uh, so, so, of course, I mean, we, we can definitely see a time bomb, bomb there. So the thing is, this is the problem with this thing, right? It is just so much uncertainty. I mean, that's why exactly from the start, always virus ahead and humanity behind, because there's always so much uncertainty and there's always this, you know, uh, policy mistakes, you know, combined with uh, disease lagging in certain countries after other countries. And instead of trying to apply, you know, what other countries learn to your own country, everybody just goes to their own way, right? That's also, I think, a big mistake, but that's exactly why these things happen. I mean, like, you know, in India's case, right? We knew before when countries relax and decided that, oh, we want this and start doing all these big gatherings, there was another wave. I mean, US went through this, Europe went through this. So, but still it happened in India, right? So that's the, that's the, this, this is like mind blogging. I don't understand how countries uh, don't learn from the mistakes of each other, right? I mean, like, yeah, so, I mean, like, and the, the best example, of course, is at the start, right? I mean, when Italy, I mean, like, you know, Italy was telling the whole world, no, this is not just a small thing. And nobody did anything. I mean, Italy should have been a wake up call. Uh, last year, when when clear this thing is not in China, I mean everybody was still saying, oh yeah, but maybe I mean nobody did any anything. So except scientists. I and mean, if you, if you think about last year, that moment, February, March, April, it looks like the only people who were working are the scientists who were trying to find the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. surprising to me, Sadnama. I don't think humans ever learn. Yeah. From, um, if this were to happen five five years from now. I'll put money on exactly the same things happening again. <laughs> yeah, know? so sad, so sad. It, it is It is sad. Um, so we, we'll take a quick break, Sam, and we'll come back, we'll talk about monetary policy and your other paper. Great, thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, Sepnam, we are back. Uh, we were talking about COVID-19 uh, and policy um, policy issues around that, uh, not just in one country, but around the world, and uh, how we may have missed the mark uh, in many ways um, uh, around the world. So, so you have a couple of other papers, which is more... Uh, focused domestically. So, so one paper is risk-taking and monetary policy transmission, evidence from loans to SMEs and large firms, uh, in which you say using confidential regulatory firm bank loan level data from the US, we document four new facts about the credit market. So, so, so what do you find in the credit markets? Uh, yes, so this is actually uh, part of my research that I have been involved uh, a long time, since the 2008 Lehman crisis. Yeah. Uh, I work with European data first because Europeans uh, require small firms, uh, small medium enterprises. These are the firms you know, with less than 500 employees to, to file their financial accounts and to public registry. So as researchers, we can access that information and we can look at issues such as uh, if these firms borrow a lot, is there uh, a debt overhang issue? And especially after the 2008-2010 crisis, these issues were a uh, really big deal in Europe. So 
I did uh, several papers on that. At the time, of course, I wanted to work with the U.S. firms too. But as I said, in U.S., uh, the only listed publicly listed companies in the stock exchange required to file their financials. So we only had information about those, and those are, of course, very large firms, right? If you want a number, uh, uh, average size of a publicly listed company is 3,000 employee. Whereas when you look at the census and small business administration data, average size uh, there is 12 employee. So, so clearly, you know, just looking at the listed company is not going to tell you what is going on in the in the main street in the in the world of um, SMEs, small medium enterprises. And we saw it very clearly at the beginning of the crisis, right? So, stock market is uh, breaking record after record uh, early in COVID, and it still is. Whereas we also saw this huge increase in unemployment, total disconnect of uh, Wall Street and Main Street. Why? Because the Main Street companies, the companies that are responsible for jobs and employment are not uh, listed companies. So uh, I was trying to get at the bottom of this for a long time in the US, but the data wasn't there. So finally, actually, we now have the data. Federal Reserve uh, collects this data as part of the stress testing exercise. Actually, they started doing it after the 2008 Lehman uh, collapse uh, as part of the Dodd-Frank Act. So, and now researchers can work with this data. I, of course, we are join, joining forces with researchers at the Federal Reserve. I have two co-authors on this paper who uh, work at Federal Reserve. Uh, and we, we look at this data, try to understand the, the credit markets, loan markets in the US and how these uh, small guys, small medium enterprises, uh, finance their growth and we find that actually they are bank dependent they they borrow from banks and uh, they are collateral constrained meaning when they borrow it is hard for them to put down a collateral like if, you know land or factories or uh, you know physical assets uh, because these are small medium enterprises so most of the time they put their uh, enterprise value meaning they put a claim uh, to their productivity, you know, if they are successful, then basically that's the claim, right? If, if, if yeah. they are not, then the bank is going to take away everything they have. But uh, basically, there isn't the, there's the collateral on the table. So that's why it's hard for them to borrow. And also, they are really, uh, they like low interest rates because low interest rates make them easy to service their debt so they borrow more and one of the very striking facts we show in that paper is uh after the lehman crisis uh, because uh, interest rates basically and and being zero in the us and stayed low for a long time these firms smes did borrow a lot and they increased their leverage actually uh which can be an issue right it can consider the financial stability risk going forward, uh, especially uh, when there is a shock like COVID uh, on the table right now, because uh, you know these firms are going to be mostly in service sectors, they are small, so revenue is very important to them, and if they cannot have their, their revenue, they can be close to bankruptcy and so forth. So in that sense, so far, what has been done on the policy side in terms of helping these firms uh, was very good. All these programs like PPP uh, and all designed to help these type of firms. Yeah. Uh, so, so you say um, in the paper that uh, when monetary policy is expansionary, banks do not lend differently to risky and non-risky firms, whether they are private SMEs or public listed firms. Uh, instead, risk taking is driven by credit demand since SMEs who lack collateral in terms of physical assets increase their leverage due to low interest rates which increases their ability to pay back the loan. So, uh, so, so are you saying the monetary policy being expansionary doesn't necessarily have a huge effect? I mean, it does, but not through the channel we talk. So that's yeah. the big result we are finding because there, there was all these narrative, uh, you know, all you know, monetary policy being expansionary is not good. These zero interest rates, no good. In fact, we even have a name for it, too low for too long, too low for too long. So too low interest rates for too long is, is not good. Why? Because banks are going to take risk because banks cannot make money under these very low interest rates. So they are going to go and find out risky customers. They are going to lend to risky firms so that they can charge a premium on that uh, low uh, rate, right? So we find actually banks don't do that. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe in the old days they used to do that, but our data starts 
after the crisis. Our data starts in 2013. And yeah. at that time, banks were pretty much regulated, uh, pretty heavily regulated across the rich world, not just US, but also in Europe. So in our sample, starting 2013, actually banks, you know, banks are not out there to find the extra risky customer. They are out there to find the extra customer. Of course, their business model is like to get an extra customer, but not necessarily that customer has to be a risky customer. So we actually find that, you know, this uh, low interest and expansion monetary policy can be dangerous. Yes, you're right. But not because banks are playing this game, but rather these small firms who are normal time constraint firms now say, oh, gee, I mean, now I can borrow because I can borrow at 1% before it was like borrowing at 5%. So, you know, I didn't think about borrowing before, but now I can because I can I can pay this at one percent. Right. That's that's what is happening. That's that's mm -hmm. the effect we are finding. Yeah. So so the increase the leverage. Um, so that that action of increasing their leverage also increases the probability of going bankrupt. True. I mean, this is exactly why COVID is very dangerous. Right. So because if you increase your leverage as a small, medium sized enterprise, then your uh, you know, default probability goes up. Actually, leverage is something directly linked to default probability. The bankruptcy uh, likelihood is going to be higher. You're exactly right. Uh, so, and any bad shock uh, is going to make you c come quickly to that point because you are going to, bad shock being, you are a shock that makes you lose your revenue. So in that sense, actually, COVID came at a very bad juncture in US economy when these guys, these small medium enterprises increase their leverage uh, since 2013 2014 yes mm. and so so this is sort of a double whammy you increase your leverage and then you get a shock you're going to go bankrupt um so you have another paper in 2020 covid 19 and sme failures um it is sort of finding that right Yes. So, of course, what happened in 2020 is, I mean, policymakers understood this. Look, all these SMEs can go bankrupt right now. We should do something. And they put a lot of policy packages on the table. I mean, in U.S., you know, there was the PPP. There was other main state programs. In Europe, there were several things like Solidarity Fund, Recovery Fund. Uh, many, many countries did these government-backed loans, government-guaranteed loans. So, uh, realizing this point. So, that paper is trying to show actually governments did good on that. So in terms of uh, providing support to SMEs uh, with these packages, they actually did the right call. This was the right decision because now if you look at the real-time bankruptcy numbers in 2020, they are very low. Actually, several countries even stopped bankruptcy proceedings. I mean, Germany said, I'm not allowing any firm to file for bankruptcy. I'm going to help you. So... In that sense, we didn't observe any, any bankruptcy because government intervened heavily here, and rightly so. So the paper is trying to make the point that this is actually good policy because if they wouldn't have done that, what would have happened? So paper works a counterfactual exercise where if none of this uh, support were put on the table, uh, what would be the SME bankruptcy rate? And, and it's huge. We estimate a nine, almost 10 percentage point increase in SME bankruptcy rate. So just uh, to give you a perspective, normal time bankruptcy rate for these for these uh, firms in all the countries actually varies between 6% and 10%. So in a normal business cycle, you know, 6 to 10% of SMEs go bankrupt, okay? So COVID in the absence of any government intervention policy support would have increased this to almost 20, 25%. So there is like a 10 percentage point increase in the bankruptcy rate in the absence of government intervention. So it didn't happen because of the government intervention. That's what this paper shows. Yeah, I also find uh, interesting in the paper you say we evaluate the cost and effectiveness of various policy interventions. You say the final cost of an intervention that narrowly targets at-risk firms can be modest, 0.54% of GDP. However, at a similar level of effectiveness, non-targeted subsidies can be substantially more expensive, 1.82% of GDP. I remember when PPP loans were put in place, there was a large education institution in the Northeast, which shall remain nameless, uh -huh. yeah. first in line to um, 
to get a PPP loan of $150 million. Um, they had no shame <laughs> to take that money. They never returned that money. Um, and so th these, these programs have been put in place sort of blanket, you know, without any sort of constraints on the size of the firm and things like that, uh, could be quite expensive for taxpayers. Exactly. And that part of the paper is uh, trying to do exactly that. So we are economists. We want to do things efficiently. And then we said uh, that in that part of the paper, okay, let's compare all these interventions. Most of them are going to be these government-backed loans, government-guaranteed loans. Some of them work as direct grants. Uh, you know, PPP has that type of a dimension. If you keep your employment, it becomes a cash grant. Some of them work as uh, subsidizing part of your employment. So they were different policies. In fact, if you look at these trackers uh, among G20 countries, there were 500 different policy packages put on the table as a huge number. So we tried to compare the basic ones, four or five ones, is it, if like a loan is better than a cash grant or a subsidy. And what we find is uh, exactly what you, you were saying. You do save the same amount of firms. That is not the point, but at what cost, right? When you do these blanket uh, subsidies and okay, here's the money or you know cash grants that everybody take it, then of course it becomes uh, very costly to taxpayers, exactly as you were saying. Instead, if you would have done targeted, now of course we can do that in our paper because we have a model and we can pinpoint which firm is failing because of COVID and which firm would have been uh, uh, failed anyway without COVID or which firm would be just fine uh, without COVID. So we can separate these firms and then we do an exercise of a targeted intervention. So governments only goes and uh, saves those firms with cash grant. And that is actually, you are saving the right firms and you are costing very little, right? So that has very little fiscal cost. But of course, again, this is not practical because uh, we don't have these systems in place, right? I mean, if you want to go and save only those firms, which are those firms, they are like restaurants, you know, gyms, your dentist, daycare, right? These firms were completely fine without COVID. Uh, you have to go and find these firms and you have to give only them the money and not others. Uh, I mean, so your uh, nameless institution in Boston wasn't on the problem. There were also many firms who should have been bankrupt even without COVID, right? These kind of the firms we call zombies, uh, they also got helped, right? So in that sense, uh, that type of a surgical procedure with that type of precision wasn't possible then because we don't have a place, we don't have a system in place that says, okay, look, uh, let me look at the tax records and these firms' profits and productivity and decide if this is a viable firm or not. So I will give the money only to that firm. So yeah. since that cannot be done, it end up actually, uh, it is going to cost, uh, uh, you know, more than it should to taxpayers. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so, so in conclusion, Sebna, let me ask you this. When COVID-30 comes around, um, what are the specific things that you would say the world has to really think about. My, my pessimistic view is that we will have the same kind of politicians leading large countries uh, with an objective function of a single factor objective function of getting elected uh, down the road. They, they don't particularly care about people. Um, so we'll have the same type of politicians just like we do today uh, in power so when COVID-30 comes around, what do you think we, you know, what what could we do to, to make the situation better? Uh, I mean, you're exactly right. COVID-30 is in 10 years. So I don't think in 10 years we are going to improve on, on this, on the politician side. We are going to have uh, most, in terms of the world, probably you are right. We are going to have these politicians who only think about being uh, elected. But for COVID, I don't know, maybe for COVID-50, we can do better. I mean, you know, the only solution to this is education. I mean, we yeah. can only get through this by education and educating the water, right? I mean, since you cannot take away voting rights of anyone, I mean, the way to do it is to educate everyone so that, uh, you know, people really will uh, put their vote in an educated way. So that I'm hoping we will achieve uh, by, you know, COVID-50. I mean, COVID-30, COVID I am hoping that we will achieve this, this international organization we talk about, right? Some sort of body with, with resources and power that we can do. And on top of 
all the public health issues and, and you know, following what is going on and try to uh, catch these things, if not before, right when it's happening. So world mobilizes exactly then. I mean, look at the time we lost with this, right? I mean, if we mobilized January 2020, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in, in, this, in this shape, right? I mean, at that point, like, everybody was making fun of this. Everybody was like, oh, this is just something only in China. Uh, so that, I think, should be avoided for COVID-30, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is one change. Uh, people at least can see now how diseases can spread really, really fast across the world. Yeah, it is a worldwide problem, so you cannot really solve it in a segmented way. I think, you know, there was some sort of maybe false uh, expectation or information. Um, after uh, we had, I can't remember the name of the disease in Africa, uh, that wasn't very highly transmissible. It was highly contained. Um, whereas, you know, we are going to get highly transmissible diseases like COVID in the future. And that is not containable by country or county. Uh, so at, at least hopefully we'll remember that in the next time. Yeah, no, I fully agree and I, I hope so. Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Sebnam. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you, Jill. This was great. Thank you so much. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.